We are in year number five of uh, walking through the entire Bible, and this year uh, we're finishing up our journey through Scripture by looking at uh, the Minor Prophets, and then we will look at uh, most of Paul's epistles, although we've already been through Romans and Ephesians. And uh, so we're, we're doing the first nine Minor Prophets. We're in number three of nine. And uh, that is the book of Amos. We're just going through in order till we get through uh, Zephaniah. And then we're going to hit uh, 1 Corinthians around Easter, which will be great. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter on resurrection. So uh, we'll be soaking in the right scriptures uh, leading into Easter. Um, Amos is, is uh, the third prophet that we come to. And... Um, same time frame that we've been looking at, all right? So this is the time at which God begins to send prophets to the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, the ten tribes that were taken away uh, as really as judgment on Solomon's actions and allowing idolatry to creep into the kingdom. God, uh, divide, God allowed the kingdom to become divided. Rehoboam's son, or Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, stayed in Judah, and as he was trying to establish his kingdom, God had raised up adversaries to oppose him uh, for the idolatry that had crept in through uh, uh, his father Solomon, all of his wives and, and their foreign deities that had uh, inundated the kingdom. And so Jeroboam um, led a coup, and there was this prophetic uh, this prophetic act that was spoken over Jeroboam's life where a prophet came and he tore his garments into 10 pieces and he said, this is how the kingdom is going to be torn away from, uh, from Rehoboam. And Jeroboam, you're going to be the man that leads those in, in separation from the southern uh, tribe of Judah. And so the kingdom divided and northern Israel started off on the wrong foot. Jeroboam set up uh, an idolatrous temple location in Bethel, and it was a strategic thing that he did. He set it up there so that people would not go to Jerusalem because he knew that if they went to Jerusalem, their hearts would be turned and they would ally themselves with, uh, with Judah. And so it was a political, it was a, it was a religious slash political move in setting up holy sites north of Jerusalem. And th- those sites continued, all right? And so the northern tribes um, got off on the wrong foot and they never recovered, right? None of the northern kings were ever called good kings. Uh, there were a few southern kings that were, that were called good, uh, but none of the northern kings ever, ever gained that title. And so... Hosea, Joel, and Amos are all prophets around this time when the northern kingdom is beginning to uh, come under the judgment of God for their idolatry and their faithlessness. And it's going to be at the hands of the Assyrian superpower that was, uh, that was kind of the superpower of the day. Now that gets swallowed up uh, later on by Babylon, and that's who takes the southern kingdoms into captivity. So Amos is prophesying against Israel. And at this point in scripture, when you hear Israel, you got to hear northern tribes. Israel as opposed to Judah. 
Uh, another word would be Ephraim, which uh, Hosea calls out Ephraim a lot. That would be Israel as well. Uh, it's also, when he, when he talks about Samaria, it's referring to, that's a particular city, but it's referring to the whole northern, uh, the northern kingdom of, of Israel. Amos is perhaps the earliest writing prophet. Right? Now, there's prophets all through Scripture. Right? Moses was a prophet. But even, even immediately before Amos, you have Elijah, Elisha, and a few of the other prophets that are named in the, the narrative of the kings. Uh, but Amos is probably the earliest, uh, the earliest written prophetic book. All right? Before Isaiah, even though that comes first in the prophets, before Jeremiah, before all that. And again, we get a, we get a great uh, time stamp here, which is always helpful in the beginning of the, the, the prophets. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel, that's the northern tribe, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That's the identical period that Hosea was prophesying to. Joel doesn't have a timestamp, but it was likely at that time uh, as well. So, do you remember what we, what we said about this period of time? It's relative prosperity. Uh, both Uzziah and Jeroboam too. it's not the original Jeroboam, it's the second Jeroboam, um, had pretty long reigns. And whenever you see a long reign in kings, it's, it means prosperity. Right? There were no, uh, you know, they were able to set up, their, their, the borders were secure, uh, the, the crops were good, there was no famine. Usually in times of uh, judgment or times of opposition, the, the kings turned over a lot more quickly, either due to assassination or coups or whatever, or just God taking someone out of office, God striking someone down uh, for their wickedness. So long reign means relative prosperity. Amos is going to prophesy, uh, and, and what Amos, I think, uniquely brings to uh, the, the body of prophetic books is a perspective on Israel as the people of God in relation to the nations around them. And what I mean by that is that God, in, or, or Amos, in the way that he structures his prophecies, is trying to get Israel to see that they have become no different than the, than the nations that they pride themselves on being more holy than. Does that make sense? And so God in this book is revealing himself not as much like in Hosea as, I am the one who loves you. You are my chosen one and I've been faithful to you. Right? That's an important message. But here, God's showing that I relate to all the nations. And I want all nations to come to me. I mean, that's been my project ever since Eve ate the fruit and gave some to her husband. It's been to, how are we going to get mankind back into the garden? Right? And it's a project that was um, accelerated when God chose Abraham, and that was when he chose a family, a people. And he said, this is going to be my nation. So to illustrate what I'm saying, I love how the beginning, the first three chapters run, okay? It says, the Lord roars from Zion. 
and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And then we begin a series of oracles against the nations around Israel. But the way this works is that God, he identifies all the nations around, and then he gets closer and closer, and then he puts his finger on Israel and lumps them in with these uh, prophecies of judgment. All right, so he says, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And he says, he declares their sins and the punishment that they're going to receive. Then in verse six, he says, for three transgressions of Gaza, that would be where the Philistines were from, I will not revoke punishment. Then in verse nine, he says, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. So we've got Damascus, then Gaza, then Tyre. Then he goes on and talks about Edom, which is getting, getting closer. You know, it's like warmer, warmer. <laughs> talks about Edom. That was uh, Esau. Those are the descendants of Esau, right? And then he talks about the Ammonites. He talks about um, the Moabites. Then he talks about Judah. Whoa, that's just south of here. For three transgressions of Judah and four, I will not revoke punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. And then he says, thus says the Lord, this is chapter two, verse six, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And before we talk about the, what the, the issues, the primary issues that God has with Israel, I just want you to see that um, God is getting ready to declare judgment. And the way he does it it would be like, um, oh, what's the best way to describe this? It would be like if you were like just in a really bad part of town, right? And um, there was just bad stuff going on all around you. And the police showed up, right? And you're like, oh, whew, I'm glad the police are here because it's been getting terrible around here. This is just gross. I, this is, I can't believe I'm here. There's just bad stuff going on. I don't feel safe. And the police says, you, all right, come over here and put you in handcuffs. And you're like, you're kind of like, yes, finally, you know, justice being served. And then they put this guy and this guy, this guy, and then they come and get you and put you in handcuffs. And you go, what, what's going on? And you get thrown in the paddy wagon with all those criminals. That's what Israel is doing, right? They're sitting there and go, whoa. I liked the handcuffs on those other people, but now I, here I'm sitting and I'm in the same, I'm in the same car. We're headed down to, to get booked into uh, the jail. What's going on here? And so that's the effect that this is supposed to have, right? This enemy, yeah, Philistines, of course, yeah, they, they, need a, they need a good dose of judgment. You know, those people in Tyre, they need a good dose of judgment. So then he, he, he homes in on Israel. And he says, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And what he, what he highlights is how the wealthy are really oppressing the poor. And they're not using their wealth and their abundance to help others but they're actually using it to oppress and trying to make the poor poor and make the rich richer. Uh, and then, so that's kind of an economic 
injustice that's happening. But then he also says, uh, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So there's an idolatry that's happening. Not only are they being unjust, but then they are reveling in idolatrous worship that's being funded by unjust gain, all right? And this is where God starts to reel. He says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars. I destroyed its fruit above and its roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So he says, all right, so you're oppressing people. You are exploiting people for your own gain. He goes, hold on a second. Are you the ones that were being exploited and oppressed? And I delivered from that exploitation, exploitation and oppression? What's going on here? I raised up some of your sons for prophets and your young men as Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? So he says in verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. I like that. I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. You know, this is like one of those, those cars whose the trunk is way more full than it should be. Just <laughs> Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength. So he says, I'm going to move and, and judge you. And, and what I'm coming for is where you believe that you are strong and superior. I'm coming for that. I'm coming for what you boast in. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee naked away in that day, declares the Lord. And then in verse 3, he says, let's be honest, guys. You are unique, right? So he says, you're just like everybody else. But then he says, but here's the real issue that I have. You were supposed to be unique. I did choose you. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, right? Which was, they wouldn't have ever been able to do that in their own strength. It was a miraculous act of God. It was the defining moment. It was the moment at which they truly became a nation when God brought them out of Egypt and delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, right? And showed his superiority, Yahweh's superiority over the powers of Egypt. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. I, have a, I do have a unique relationship with you. But that's not good news for you, right? I expected more of you. There's a joke. We're, we're entering into baseball season, so like baseball analogies are in my mind, particularly Little League. Um, there's a joke in Little League that like it, it, the worst, the worst, uh, the worst anger and coaching happens between a coach and his own son that's on his team, right? He'll be like. Uh, yeah, good job. Oh, that's good. You can pick it up. Try it again. And then his own son gets out and he's like, what are you doing? Right? And why is that? I expect better. 
You're my own son. You know, all these other kids I, I, have, I have grace for. But you, you know better. I know you know better. There's a little bit of this in, in the prophets, in a holy way, in a, in a righteous way. He says, I, you were supposed to be different. You are actually going to be my solution to all the problems that are going on in the nations. But you've become just like them. And so it's not just like, oh, you're like every other nation. It's actually even worse. Because you do know better. And because I do have a special relationship with you. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And so he declares judgment on Israel. He says adversaries are going to surround you. And he basically proclaims what ends up happening in, in uh, just a few years later, that a big army is going to come after you and they're going to overrun your land and take you away captive. But what he has against them is that in their prosperity, in their ease, in their wealth, in their blessed status, they have become completely self-absorbed. In chapter 4, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. I mean, I would never want to be called a cow of Bashan by God. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. <laughs> this is, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know the cultural context, but I get a funny image in my head when I read that. Some just very pampered woman just ordering her husband around. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgression. Those were the holy sites that they had set up. In Bethel, there was a golden, there was a calf and an altar that Jeroboam had set up generations ago. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. They were they were religious. They were they liked to pride themselves on their religious activity. Proclaim free will offerings, publish them, for so you love to do. O people of Israel, declares the Lord. So he says, see if your false piety saves you. He says it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Chapter 4, he says, he ends it with saying, I've judged you in this way and you didn't turn. I've judged you in this way and you didn't turn. I've tried to get your attention in this way. You didn't turn. You didn't turn. And so now we're running out of time. We're running out of chances. Verse 10, he says, I sent, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt, right? And then he says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You should, have, you should have understood the lesson there. When you start to receive judgment at the hands of God, you should examine, oh, 
What am I doing? Just like Joel. It's like, wake up. Wake up and see what's going on. This looks just like Egypt did when God was judging Egypt. God says, exactly right. It is just like Egypt. This is like Sodom. It is just like Sodom. What, do, what does that mean about you? What does that mean about the, what, what God thinks about the way you're living? Uh, chapter 5, verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal. Don't go over there. I am not over there. Find me or cross over into Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek Yahweh, seek the Lord and live, lest ye break out like fire in the house of Joseph. And he says, you got to understand. You have to understand. I'm not just the God of Israel. In verse 8, he says, he who made the Pleiades and Orion. Right? I'm the God of the whole universe. The way you are acting affects my created order. And so... Just like the rest of the nations, I have to judge you. When you bring the evil, when you bring the wickedness into the earth, when you make injustice and unrighteousness the way of life, I have to judge you just like I'm judging every other nation that brings that wickedness into the earth. It has to go. I will not tolerate it. Even if it's it's among my people, it cannot stay. It cannot remain. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. It's like I've been trying to get your attention. And you hate when the word comes into your life. You need to turn. You are, you are evil. You need to turn from your ways. So they hate him who reproves. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you. As you have said, hate evil, love good and establish justice in the gate. This is what God says. Hate evil. Don't tolerate it. Don't play around with it. Don't wink at it. Hate it. And love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That's really the beating heart of this book. It's what God has been crying out to them. It's what he's been trying to get their attention to do. Hate evil. Why should you hate evil? Because it's bad? Because it's ew? No, hate evil because of what it does to God's good people. What it does to God's good creation. It destroys, right? It brings a blight. It brings a curse. Verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. 
And this is something I think about often when people start crying out for justice. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Guess what? When God begins to judge, he judges everybody. He doesn't just judge that person that you want him to judge. Right? The way that the book opens is perfect. You, 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 and yeah, you too. When we cry out for justice, do we really want God to come and shine his light on the depths of our heart and judge the wicked that might be there? Well, no, 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 because it's not that bad. But what that person's doing is really bad. Why do you want the day of the Lord? Don't cry out that God would start raining justice down because you're going to be lumped in together with everybody else. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. That's an interesting prophecy. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. You get together, you like to make a big deal out of it. You like to make a big religious gesture. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters. Martin Luther King, right? Justice roll down. You can't, I can't ever read this without hearing that sound clip in my my mind. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So he says, you're going to, cling to the gods that your heart has really clung to, and they're not going to be able to do anything for you. They and you all have to go. And then he says in in chapter 6, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Uh, Prosperity and blessing have led to a complacency a, a feeling of ease, particularly ease and security while continuing to uh, live wickedly in unjust lives. If you feel no twinge of conscience over what you're doing, woe to you. That's what he's saying. If you can't look at your life and go, oh, that is not, that's not what pleases God says, woe to you. If you can just sit there secure and complacent, feel secure while you keep doing what you're doing, woe to you. What are those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches? Who like to sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for for themselves musical instruments who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I mean, to me, this is such, this is such an American prophecy, right? 
Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. All right, so that's what he's saying. He said, look, look all, all the nations around you, you look at them, you look at you, can't see any difference. And in fact, you're even more on the hook because you were supposed to have my heart as your heart. You were supposed to hate evil in the way that I hate evil. You were supposed to love good in the way that I love good, but you have not. And so now, who does God have in the earth that he can point to to say, no, this, this is what life is about. Who do, where, where can he now invite the nations to come so that they could learn the ways of the Lord? That's why God says, Israel, no, it, you don't deserve this, but you, you're stretching yourselves out in your nice cushy land. I was the one who gave you this place. I was the one who drove out the Amorites. I was the one who brought you out of Egypt. And you have somehow got it in your head, which, by the way, God predicted all the way back in Deuteronomy. Right? He says, you're going to get into the land, and it's going to go well for you, and then your heart's going to turn away, and you're going to say, yeah, my own hand has brought me all these things. Hey, I like what we've done with the place. God says, well, all right, you've forgotten me. You have forgotten your God. And so um, here's what I think we can take away from Amos. Um, God's concern for the nations Right? God's concern for the nations is all through this book. He says, yeah, of course, the nations around you, they're a mess. But that's nothing new. If you're a mess in the same way, then we have problems. If you, my people that I have brought to myself and taught my ways and given my law and established my priesthood and established my temple and given you my presence, if you've turned away from me, well, now there's not any more hope for the nations. And God says, yeah, I do have my eye on the nations, and you need to know that. That was why I chose you. I didn't choose you because I had my eye on you and I only loved you. I chose you because I had my eye on the nations, and I needed a way to reach them, and I needed you to come and learn my ways and embrace my heart and hate evil with me and love good with me and establish justice with me but you've loved evil, you've hated good, and injustice rules the land. So now what are we going to do? He says, I have to judge you. I have to take you out of the land just like every other nation. So God's concern for the nations. And so it makes sense that in Acts 15, you know, last week we looked at Acts 2, where Peter gets up and the first, really the first Christian sermon that's ever, technically Christian sermon that's ever preached was on Joel. The first church council that ever met uh, used the book of Amos as their guiding text in making decisions. Isn't that cool? Joel and then Amos. Acts 15. The church has met together because what's happening? Gentiles are coming to God. The nations, those wicked people who don't know what to eat and what not to eat. They're starting to come to God. Oh, no. And God goes, oh, yes. <laughs> That's always been the plan. 
And so he says, uh, Acts 15, verse 12. All the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, who had been traveling around, seeing the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. And they've come back to report to the Jewish elders what's happening. As they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And as they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related, that's Peter. Peter had had that vision of the, the tent coming, or the, the cloth coming down with all the unclean animals. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And he says, guess what, guys? It's all right here. It's already been written down. It's in the Bible. It's what your Old Testament says. Just the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return. And I didn't read this in, in Amos yet. But this is the very last part of the book, where it's judgment, 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 judgment. And he says, but. But. And this is the part that he quotes. After this, after all the judgment, after I visit you, after you're taken away with hooks and drug out, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Why? So that they can get fat and happy again? So that they can return to their complacency and ease and ignorance and love of evil and hatred of good? No. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. That's awesome. Jesus came. The Holy Spirit fell on all flesh. It was poured out. And they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle him. So what do we do? Do they... Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to start observing the dietary laws? What do, what do we make these Gentiles do? It says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Because it was never about our little way of life over here where we get the things we want. It was never about that. He says, I gave you those laws. I gave you the land. I gave you my presence I gave you uh, my priesthood so that the nations could come back to me. All right, so Jesus fulfilled everything that God was always desiring his people to be. We read about that in Romans. And so the message, the, the twofold message of Amos is this God desires all the nations, all the earth, to come, to come back to him. And he desires to do it through his people. He wants to establish a people in the earth who are a light for him to the nations. And that's what, that's what he desires. Turn to Romans 11. That's the first part of the message. God loves the nations. He wants them to come back to him. And God has chosen a people through whom he wants to reach the nations. He wants his people to be a pattern, to be a light, to be a beacon, to be an invitation 
to the nations. This is life. Right? I mean, this is what John means when he says, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? That's basically a restatement of what I just said. God wants all people to know who he is, so he's gathering people together to be disciples and to learn that from him so that as they live life in the way that he desires, other people can see and go, hey, that's what life is about. That's what I was created for, to love God and to love people. Romans 11 This is the second message of Amos that gets reiterated, I think, again here in Romans 11. Uh, Start in verse 13, where he says, because first he's speaking to Israelites, and then he says in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles who have received the gospel, who have come into the kingdom of God. Like those Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas were testifying about. Hey, there's been this ingathering from the nations. Now I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, we don't have time to get into what that means. I'm happy to talk about it later. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, you Gentiles who have come in, you have been grafted into all the blessings of the people of God, and you, and you are actually receiving he says, it's a beautiful picture. You've been, you, are, uh, you share in the nourishing root of the tree. You're not just taped on. You're not just kind of stapled on to the side. Like you become part of the life of the root. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. But then you will say, the branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. That's the second message of Amos. It wasn't just for northern Israel. It's any time God brings a people together and saves them and does a mighty work and pours out his blessing on their life. It's for a purpose. It's not because he wants you to just sit there and consume and receive and absorb all those blessings and become complacent and become proud. Do not become proud, Paul says, to the Gentiles who were sharing the blessing, receiving the inheritance. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, like we read about in Amos, Neither will he spare you. And as Gentiles, we need to remember that. Guess what? When we are fully grafted into the blessings of God, 
Look at how he, t- look at how he spoke to his blessed people. You become proud. You become arrogant. You don't love what I love. You don't hate what I hate. And I have to bring judgment into your life to get you to turn back to me. This isn't the Old Testament. This is Romans, and he's talking to Christian Gentiles. He says, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. If we become proud as the people of God, if we take our freedom in Christ and indulge ourselves, we become proud. Right? God calls us to be his people, not so that we can go on indulging our desires and, and, and exploiting everybody else around us to get what we want. God has made us his people so that other people who don't know him can see how to live. And when we deviate from that, God says, hey, I judged Israel. I had to break off some branches there. I'm going to break off some branches among you. And I think First Peter says it is time for judgment to begin, and it begins at the household of God. Right? God first judges his people. The world's problems, the nation's problems, are our problems. Right? We are not saved from all that, so we don't have to really deal with it anymore. We are saved so that through us, God can continue drawing people who don't deserve him, just like we don't, into his family. And so that's the twofold message of Amos. God loves the nations. And as soon as his people, who were meant to be a light to the nations, go astray, he will bring judgment into their life and cut off blessing and call us to repentance. And uh, that, that work continues. That process continues. Probably he's not going to call an invading army at this point to come sweep through this church. But if any of us are proud, if, it, if any of us are complacent, if, if any of us are not grieved over obvious sin, we can expect that God is going to work in our lives to prune us. Right? To prune us, to purify us, to purge us from those things. Why? Because he, those things make him angry? That's not the full story. It's because we were saved so that we could be a light to the nations. And God needs to maintain that light. And he needs to maintain salt in the earth. And when salt loses its saltiness... Why is it there? (laughs) It's no longer good. Just throw it out. Get some real salt. Get some new salt. All right, so that's that's Paul's exhortation in Romans. Don't be proud, but fear. Meaning, maintain a proper holy perspective of who we are before God. And that it's his grace alone. Amen? He says... Note then the kindness and the severity of God, which is really like a one-sentence summary of the prophets. (laughs) Note then the kindness 
and the severity of God. All through the prophets, you see notes of hope. Hey, it's going to get bad, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to restore and I'm going to renew. But I cannot abide with persistent wickedness. I have to judge it. It can't stay. It cannot remain. Provided you continue in his kindness. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. All right, but this should be a hopeful message to us. And uh, it's great that we get to come to the table every week because this is one of the things that coming to the table should remind us of. Right? That this is a Right? This, is a, this is a enactment of the Passover meal. What was the Passover meal? Always remember that you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. Right? That's what this meal is about. Always remember it's my body that was broken, it's my blood that was poured out so that you could be healed, so that you could be saved, and you could be cleansed. So when we come to the table... We are humbling ourselves. Don't be proud, but fear. We're acknowledging the cost of our salvation. We're acknowledging that it wasn't because we were special. It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because God liked us better than someone else. It's because he loves everyone. And he was calling everyone to repentance. And he's calling us to receive his, his love, but to offer it to the world. All right, so this is, a, this is a perfect response, I think, to come to the table and remember our Lord's death. Um, so that we can maintain that posture of humility and not be proud, but fear. But also rejoice, because in this is a great act of kindness. Rejoice in the kindness of God and continue in his grace. Amen? All right, so let's pray and prepare our hearts to uh, come to the table.